1 Corinthians 7, and we will begin in verse 8. The Apostle Paul says, To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am, but if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Verse 10, To the married I give this charge, not I but the Lord, the wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. To the rest I say, I not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know wife, whether you will save your husband, or how do you know husband, whether you will save your wife? And you can be seated. So we've been looking at this issue of sexual ethics in the Christian life uh, from 1 Corinthians 6 and all throughout chapter 7. And part of the Christian sexual ethic, what the Bible has to say about this, is is um, what God wants us to do and know in regards to divorce. We need to understand how we should live in light of the issue of divorce. And we just need to understand that marriage really is the most fundamental union of all society. From the very beginning pages of Genesis, we see that the very most fundamental union is um, is the marriage union that God has made. And we also see from the very beginning pages of Genesis that fundamental union is compromised. Whether it's polygamy, whether it's wickedness, or whether it's divorce, this fundamental union has been under attack since the very earliest pages of the Bible. And Satan attacks marriages now just for the exact same reason that he attacked Adam and Eve all the way back in Genesis, and it is to attempt to undermine God's plan in the world. That's really why he does it. He attacks nonstop marriages, and I would say even Christian marriages specifically. He seeks to throw us into sin. He seeks to disrupt the union that we have through divorce, and then add to that our own sinful flesh, and you've got just... Uh, a whole host of issues that come up, um, and sadly, many marriages can end in divorce. Divorce is just the dissolving of the marriage covenant between a man and a woman. It's where you take one flesh and you make them two, whereas marriage is just the opposite. It's taking two people and making them one. Divorce undoes all of that. In this passage that we have here, maybe one of the most difficult in the New Testament um, and probably because it's something that most of us have dealt with on some level or another at some point in our life. Maybe you've been divorced. Maybe you've been divorced and then remarried. Maybe you know somebody who's been divorced or divorced and remarried. Or you know someone who is contemplating all of that. Or you have friends or you grew up in that. Some, some, somewhere in the equation, most of us have been affected by divorce and remarriage along the way. And I just want to say at the outset... That, that God's mercy and grace through Jesus is lavish and it covers all sin, including the sin of divorce and remarriage. We have to start with mercy and we have to start with grace when we talk about this issue. We'll, we'll touch on that more in a bit, but we have to temper our conversation with grace. 
We have to temper it with understanding that, that, that people have sinned in these ways, and through repentance and turning to faith in Jesus, their sins are forgiven. Add to that, let's just be honest, marriage is difficult. Marriage is really, really hard. There can be long, agonizing seasons where things just don't seem to work. There was a time early in Jody and I's marriage where uh, things were getting really bad, and we ended up going to get some counseling. Um, I think we had six or seven weeks of counseling, something like that. And so things got better for a little while, and then they got a whole lot worse for a little while. And there were times when we were not sure that we were going to make it. That we just weren't. Um, it was it was very very difficult. This passage right here is one of the passages that kept us going in the midst of uh, a difficult time. And I hope it will help keep you going in the midst of difficult times. Or if you know people who are in the midst of difficult marriages, you will encourage them with this passage. Um, There are tough truths here, but these are truths that we all need to cling to as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ to guide our understanding of marriage. And, And here's the deal before we dive in. Um, God just doesn't want to have his people just like barely getting through marriage for 40 or 50 years and then dying. That is not God's goal for your marriage. It's not God's goal for any marriage at all. You know, just, just trying to scrape through, just barely getting by and, and just, we make it to the end. No, God calls husbands to love their wives as Christ loved the church. Last I checked, that's pretty sacrificial. That's pretty radical. That's loving, that's tender, that's kind, that's gentle, that's gracious. That's the picture of the husband in the marriage. And Christ calls wives to respect and love their husbands sincerely and lavishly. In spite of all our sin, in spite of all the difficulties, frustrations, Jesus wants marriages not just to barely scrape by for the 40 or 50 years we happen to be together. No, Jesus wants our marriages to radically depict the lavish love of Christ in the church. So here's the big picture takeaway this morning. That God's plan for marriage is that it is till death do us part. That's God's plan for marriage. That it is till death do us part. We hold to our covenant until death. That's his plan. So how do we know that? Number one, because we are commanded as Christians to not divorce. It's a command. And we see this command in verses 10 and 11. There are two commands, one of the husband, one of the wife. They're the same thing. They're almost synonymous. Verse 10, to the married, I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband. Verse 11, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. So we have a command to both the husband and the wife that they should not divorce. And he actually, he calls it a charge. This, this, this takes this command and adds gravity to the command. It's not like it's a super command or something, but it's adding gravity to the command. The wife should not separate from the husband, and the husband should not divorce his wife. Those are synonyms in, in the Greek. They're, they're, they're used interchangeably. Now, a couple of things to note here. First is that when Paul gives this charge, he says, I commit, or I give this charge, but then he says, not I, but the Lord. Well, what's up with that? Well, what's up with that is that Jesus addressed a lot of issues about marriage, but not every single issue in marriage in his ministry. And here in verse 10, uh, we see that that actually Jesus did address this this issue of 
of divorce in his ministry. We'll actually flip to a passage here in just a minute. And, and so all he's saying when he says, not I, but the Lord, is just, hey, the Lord has spoken directly to this situation. And I'm just repeating him. If you look down in verse 12, he'll say something different. He says, to the rest, I say, I, not the Lord. And you're going, well, wait a minute. So is this a lesser command? No, it's not a lesser command. His only point is Jesus didn't happen to say anything about this specific situation. So I'm giving you this command. What we need to understand is all the commands have equal validity. So the red letters in your Bible are just as important as the black letters in your Bible, if you have that distinction in your Bible. They're, they're all equal. All he's pointing out is we don't have anything on record of Jesus saying anything particularly about what happens if a believer is married to an unbeliever. But, but he has the Holy Spirit guiding him, and so this is all, this is all God-breathed um, and authoritative. So in verse 10, Paul says that what he's saying on the subject is just a repetition, really, of what Jesus has already said, which is namely, if you're married to a believer, you are charged by God to not get a divorce. You need to stay married. Do not separate. Again, those are synonyms. There is never a time for a Christian to initiate a divorce against their spouse. There's no, there's no time that we see in the Bible where that initiation of a new covenant believer would, would be be valid in any way. And we'll actually see even in the next section as it relates to a mixed marriage between a believer and unbeliever, there still is no valid reason for a believer to initiate a divorce. So here you have two Christians who are married to each other and God does not allow either one of them to initiate a divorce. So do you know what happens? They stay married. That's what happens. It's pretty simple math. If you've got two believers who are married together and neither one of them are allowed to divorce, then they stay married. When I do premarital counseling, and I've talked a lot of it throughout the last few weeks about when I do premarital counseling. I'm not like trying to hawk my services here. I don't charge for premarital counseling, by the way. Um, but, but I bring this up because these are some of the key passages that we go to when we're talking about marriage. And the very first session I do on with premarital counseling is the covenant of marriage and that the covenant of marriage lasts till death. So I'm taking these, these two people who are crazy in love with each other and can't imagine ever having a fight with each other. And I'm telling them you're going to have seasons where we come to this passage and we go through this passage very soberly. It's not that way now, but there might be those seasons and you need to gear up for that. And you need to understand that you're going to want a way out, but there's no way out. And the analogy that I usually give them is that if you're on an airplane, just you and someone else, and you think that airplane's going to crash, and you got a parachute in that airplane, what are you going to do? You're grabbing that parachute, and you are bailing. You are finding any reason you can to bail. If there's no parachute, what are you doing on the plane? You're doing everything you can to keep that thing in the air. And you're doing everything you can to get that thing to land smoothly and safely. That's the difference. If you know there's no way out, if you know the covenant bond of marriage is permanent, you will do everything in your power to not just survive the marriage, but you will thrive in the marriage. You will lay down your life. You will sacrifice to do everything you can to make your marriage better. So let me, let me just address two issues that people often bring up that are kind of related to this. So number one is what about adultery? Doesn't that give grounds for divorce? And what about abuse? Does that give grounds for divorce? Let me address the issue of abuse first. 
First of all, if there's someone who professes to be a Christian abusing people, you know what we can be assured of? That they are not, in fact, Christians. There should be no abuse at all. There is this epidemic right now in the American church of pastors and church leaders who are not only abusing people, but they are covering up abuse. They are absolutely wolves in sheep's clothing, and it has no place in the church at all. uh, Abuse is not safe in the church, at least not in this church. Not at all. Second, if someone is abusing people, they need to go to prison. And they need to go to prison for a long, long time. That's how serious this is. God does not take abuse lightly. The problem is that with a lot of abuse, it's often secret, and there's little evidence except for just the testimony of one person, their word against another, and there's nothing that the law can do, but that doesn't mean there's nothing that the church can't do. The church should protect those who are vulnerable. In those cases, however, I would not advocate for a divorce, but I would advocate for leaving the home. If your son or your daughter is being abused or you are being abused, you need to leave. In love, the best thing that you can do is to prevent this other person from harming people any further. 100%. Different circumstances will dictate what all that entails, but I would never send somebody back into a situation where abuse was likely to occur again. If you have a specific scenario that you'd like to talk to me about, talk to me privately. So that's abuse. What about adultery? The short answer is that adultery is never given as a reason for divorce in the Bible. As, uh, apart from what, what people claim, it's, it's just not. So let's look back at Matthew 5 for a moment. This is usually the passage that people turn to when they say, well, adultery gives me a reason for divorce. It's actually not a reason that's given by Jesus. <clears throat> so in Matthew chapter 5, we have the Sermon on the Mount. We, uh, we tackled this passage, I think, about a year, year and a half ago. But it's good to have a refresher. So the specific passages in question are in Matthew 5, verses 31 and 32. Jesus touches on this again in almost the exact same language in Matthew 19. It's a, it's a parallel passage, but, but Matthew 5 will suffice for us um, for this morning. But he says, Jesus says in Matthew 5, verse 31 and 32, and this is what Paul is quoting, not I, but the Lord. Jesus says, it was also said, whoever divorces his wife... Let him give her a certificate of divorce. That would make it legitimate. That's fine. All you got to do is give her a piece of paper. Verse 32, but I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So what the people Jesus is talking to believed was that all you had to do was just just give somebody a certificate of divorce. And then that was that was legitimate. That's fine. Hey, They gave her a piece of paper, she can go on her way. Or she gave him a piece of paper, they can go on their way. No harm, no foul, divorce is fine, God's good with it. You just dissolve the marital union that God put together, but hey, we're good. As long as they've got that little piece of paper. Interestingly, in Jesus' time, there there was a group of people who believed that you could get a divorce for literally any reason. And one of the reasons, stop. One of the reasons given was for cooking bad meals. Kid you not. You can send her on her way. Not a good cook. Well, that's nonsense. Jesus says, no. Only on the ground of sexual immorality can there be divorce. And you go, well, isn't that that the ground? Well, the Greek word there is a very specific word. It's porneos. It's where we get our word porn for pornography or whatever. And the word often refers to sexual immorality in general. 
But when it's paired up with another word specifically meaning adultery, it is a very specific use of the word. And what it actually means is fornication outside of the marriage covenant. It means sexual sin outside of the marriage covenant. Specifically, um, sexual sin in what is called the betrothal period. See, in Jewish times, or in ancient times, there was what was called the betrothal period. We have an engagement in the Jewish in the Jewish society around the time of Jesus, they had what was called betrothal. Betrothal was stronger than our engagement uh, ceremony, whatever. Um, betrothal was actually a legally binding thing where two people became, for all intents and purposes, except sexual intimacy, they became husband and wife. They were called husband and wife, and to dissolve the betrothal, you had to get a divorce. This was a legally binding thing. In fact, if you remember, earlier in Matthew's gospel, there were two people who were betrothed together. That's Joseph and Mary. You remember that? And you remember that Joseph found out Mary was pregnant, and he's going, well, I didn't do it. And so you remember what Joseph wanted to do with Mary. What do you want to do? Divorce her quietly. You go, well, wait a minute, but aren't they, aren't they not married? Well, they're not fully married. They're in the betrothal period. And in order to dissolve the betrothal, you would have to show evidence of porneos, sexual immorality. Well, he could just point to her belly and go, I didn't do it. And that's it. That's all you got to do. So this is a very specific thing that refers to that betrothal period. And I think Matthew puts it in there to help us understand that Joseph wasn't doing anything wrong, at least from his initial perspective. He didn't know the Holy Spirit had come upon her until the dream afterward. Matthew is the only gospel that gives us any sort of exception at all. Mark's gospel doesn't, doesn't mention it at all. Jesus just says, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. This right here, even the wording does not allow for adultery. It's a, it's a different word altogether. And it's used technically in that betrothal sense, that premarital engagement or yeah, betrothal situation. So adultery, we don't find to be a reason for divorce. Turn over to John chapter 4 for just a moment. In John 4, we have the woman at the well. And she is a social outcast who happens to meet Jesus. We know that she's a social outcast because she is going to the city well to gather water in the middle of the day. That would be the worst time in the world to gather water because it's hot. You go to gather water at the, the early morning of the day when everybody else goes. But she goes in the middle of the day, most scholars believe, because she is the societal outcast. And I think it's important to read through this and tease out a couple of things that Jesus says here related to divorce and, and remarriage as well. So look at John 4, verse 16. We'll just kind of pick it up halfway through their conversation. Jesus said to her, go and call your husband and, and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the, the place where people ought to worship. And then she goes on. What Jesus has just done is get to the heart of what's going on in her life. And that is her her marriage, her many husbands. 
when Jesus mentions that she's been married five times, he tries to dodge the question. We're not talking about that. We're talking about where's our church located? We say here, you say there. We want to talk about just religious stuff. But I want to make a couple of observations because I think this is helpful. First of all, is that even though divorce and remarriage is a sin, it is adultery, when someone gets remarried, they establish a legitimate marital union. They establish a legitimate marital union. Notice that Jesus says she has had five husbands. He actually refers to each one of these as her husband. They were legitimately married to her. And most scholars believe that she was not a widow five times over. If that were the case, she wouldn't be an outcast collecting water in the middle of the day. Most people believe that she just went from one man to the next, or her husbands went from one woman to the next. So this, that's not, so she, so she likely had divorced wrongly and then been remarried wrongly, but Jesus nevertheless recognizes the legitimacy of her marriages. The second thing that I want to point out is just that just living with someone does not constitute marriage. Just living with someone does not constitute a marriage. Notice Jesus calls her out on this, and she knows it too. She knows it too. Verse 16, Jesus said, go and call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus says, you are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is, in fact, true. Jesus says, you've got a man. And the idea is, you're being intimate with this man in a way that is reserved only between spouses, only between a husband and a wife. They are physically one flesh together, but there is no covenant union between them, and so their relationship is sinful. What's interesting is she's actually committing adultery against her fifth husband with her sixth man. That's what's going on. That's what he's calling her out on. That is still a legitimate thing. You should not be committing adultery, and what you've got going on is not marriage. And she concedes as much. If you have an ESV study Bible, uh, there's a note on verse 18 that I just love. I think it's just a great summary. And it says that a marriage requires some kind of official sanction in public ceremony at which a man and a woman commit to the obligations of marriage, and the community then recognizes that a marriage has begun. So, so we have a, a particular way that we perform weddings in America, but that doesn't necessarily have to be the way. If, if, you know, if there's some tribe in Africa and you, you walk around the pole five times in the middle of the community and that's your marriage, like, then that is how the community recognizes that there's been a legitimate covenant union together. Different places, different societies do it different ways, but the thing that we see all over is that there is a public ceremony, it is officially sanctioned. It's a man and a woman. And after whatever that ceremony is, the majority of the community recognizes the legitimacy of this union. So we can do some different things, but, but that's there. And I would add to that that people make covenants and vows with one another. But she hadn't done this with the man that she lives with. If you know the rest of the story, though, you know that there's grace, isn't there? Jesus doesn't just cut her off. Oh, you've had six guys. See ya. Can't, can't deal with that. No, you know what he says? He says, I'm going to show you grace too. And she goes off to her village and she becomes Jesus's evangelist. And she starts telling people, this man told me everything about my life. And they start flocking to Jesus and he pours out grace and mercy and truth on all of them. So it doesn't matter what your situation is. 
grace and truth can be poured out even with this sin. Okay, turn back over to 1 Corinthians 7. And, and again, I, I, just, I just want to encourage us. Adultery is not the unpardonable sin. It is sin. And it's one that I think very often that the church does not take seriously enough. We're so busy talking about homosexuals and LGBTQ whatever. This is a sin, and we need to talk about this. But there is grace for sin. There is mercy for sin. And we also need to be the people who dispense grace and mercy through the gospel as well. So command number one is do not get a divorce. What happens if a believer does get a divorce? Then what? Verses 10 and 11. To the married, I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. So one thing I think we need to do when we read commands like that is just sort of step back from the fray and recognize that these are not complicated commands. These commands are actually very, very simple. They're very straightforward. There's no fine print. There's no caveats. It's, it's just right there. And, and I'll be honest with you guys. This is what makes the Christian life so radical, is that by and large, the commands that we have in the Bible are pretty simple. They're pretty straightforward. The hard part is actually submitting ourselves to God's will to follow them. That's the hard part. Because we want to make a million excuses. We want to make a million exceptions for our situation where we can lie or we can distort the truth or we can take or we can steal or we can do whatever. All these commands, you know, yeah, yeah, I get it. They're, they're out there. No, they're, they're just simple. They're just simple. When we call Jesus Lord, when we submit to him as our Lord, what we are saying is he is our master. He's the one with the rules and we submit to those rules as his slave. The master, the counterpart to the master is the slave. We're the slaves. He's the master. And so we follow him. And we follow what he says. And so here, these are, these are just the simple commands. There's, there's really just, there's just two options. There's, if you get divorced, there's the option of remaining unmarried. And then there's the option of being reconciled to her husband. And I think the insinuation there also is that the husband could be reconciled to his wife. It goes both directions. So option number one is if someone sinned by divorce, they're to remain unmarried. And that's their life from then on. They are unmarried. They operate as single from there on out. And you go, well, that's, that's pretty radical. Well, that's, that's just what he says. Remain unmarried. If you did this one thing that you shouldn't have done, which is divorce, then, then option number one is just to remain unmarried. In fact, this is, this is what we vow to one another when we take vows. We say forsaking all others Till death do us part. That, that's just what we're promising, is forsaking all others until death separates us from the person we're making a vow with. A lot of people assume that if someone gets a divorce, that simply frees them up for remarriage. It's just not true. In all of the passages of the gospel, remarriage is always considered, in the situation of divorce, remarriage is always considered a sin. It's always considered a sin, and here as well, which is why Jesus warns against it. We forsake all others until death. The wedding vows that we make simply reflect the Bible's view of marriage. 
So if someone separates, they are to remain unmarried. That's option number one. Option number two is to be reconciled. You could go back to your spouse. You could do that. Verse 11. But if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. I have to tell you that word reconciled is a profoundly rich word in the original language. It's kata legeto. Kata legeto. It's the word that we usually see in regards to our salvation, how we were reconciled to God. So 2 Corinthians 5.18, Paul says this, all of this is from God who through Christ reconciled us, kata legeto, to himself and who gave us the ministry of reconciliation. So we've been reconciled to God and now we go out and we are little reconcilers with the world, primarily through the gospel. This is what God has done for all of us in Christ. He has proactively brought us back together with him through his son, Jesus. And because we've been reconciled to him, we now go out and try and reconcile the world to Christ through the preaching of the gospel. That's what we do. We become advocates of reconciliation spiritually, but we become models of reconciliation maritally. In our marriage, primarily, is where we demonstrate this idea of reconciliation. And I have to tell you, the hardest part of at least my marriage is the work of reconciliation. When stuff goes sideways and and you have to apologize and you have to ask forgiveness, you have to confess your sin, you have to change habits, you have to mop up the damage of the words and the things that you did. You have to be the first one to say you're sorry. Maybe you're the only one to say you're sorry, even when you think that you deserve an apology too. No, that's reconciliation. That's just the hard work that we have to do. That's what we're called to. Living with the reality that what we've done and what we've said might take years to be forgotten. But listen, if our holy God can reconcile us wicked sinners to himself through the death of his son, we can be reconciled to one another. We can be reconciled. Romans 5.10, same word. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. The gospel is reconciliation. That's why it can happen within a marriage, because we know it intimately. We initiate reconciliation. We are the ones that go forth and seek to make it better. Why keep doing that? Well, keep doing that because God keeps doing that. Well, they don't do that. I can't answer for them. But God keeps reconciling, and so we keep reconciling. We keep doing that hard work. And that work is what we see in the gospel. And that work is on the table for believers who might divorce against God's command not to. It's still on the table. You, it, it's Yogi Berra. It ain't over till it's over. That's our mantra. Even if somehow we find ourselves in that divorce situation, it ain't over till it's over. We keep going. We keep seeking reconciliation. Reconciliation is a legitimate option. I've known several couples who got divorced. And through God's grace, worked it back out and they got remarried to one another. Praise Jesus. That is amazing. That's awesome. That's doing the hard work of Cataleghetto. Of reconciliation. That is showing the love of Christ over and over. Jesus, who lays himself down for his bride, will never, never, never leave his bride. He will never leave you. 
And you're called to do the same thing with your bride. And you're called to do the same thing with your husband. We see that pictured so beautifully in the book of Hosea, where Hosea goes and he marries this harlot, this prostitute, and he literally, over and over, buys her back from the auction block to bring her into his house and to love her lavishly. That's what we are called to do. To reflect the love of God for his wayward, sinful people, that's what the marriage covenant shows. Marriage always assumes there's two people that are sinful. It always assumes there are two people that give up but need that encouragement to keep going. It assumes that there are two people who are wretched. That's why we take the vows. We need those vows. Don't need the vows when the times are good. You need the vows when the times are tough. So don't get divorced. If you do remain unmarried, or better yet, reconcile with your spouse. What about those who are married to unbelievers? Well, we have a command from God on that as well. Verse 12. To the rest I say, I, not the Lord. Again, that means that we don't have anything written by Jesus specifically on this, but this is still authoritative. So to the rest I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. So before we dive into this, I just want to say that believers are only to marry other believers. I I think I covered this a few weeks ago, but I just want to cover this one more time. Just for the record, look down at verse 39 and 40. This is this is the issue of of a wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives. So if, if there's a widow, she's she's able to get remarried. And if there's a widower, he's able to get remarried. No problem. So verse 39 A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she is free to be remarried to whom she wishes, only in the Lord. Yet in my judgment, she is happier if she remains as she is, and I think that I too have the Spirit of God. So if someone is widowed, they are able to remarry. That's not a problem. But he says only in the Lord. And what that means is they are to remarry to somebody who is a believer, They have to be in Christ. They're a Christian, not a weak sauce Christian wannabe, not someone who just started going to church to impress people. No, Christians are to marry those who are filled with the fruit of the spirit that shows that they are saved and they have a desire to grow in Christ. That's what we see. We often quote the the passage in 2 Corinthians 6.14, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. I think that verse encompasses way more than marriage. But it certainly doesn't encompass less than marriage. There's no more greater yoking together than marriage. That's the partnership. We also see the people of Israel in the Old Covenant were not allowed to marry pagans. They were not allowed to marry unbelievers. And by the way, I have literally never seen a marriage between an unbeliever and a believer work out well. I've never seen it. It's always a train wreck. It just depends on how many cars are in the train. It's always bad. Worst case scenario is they put up with you for a while and then they begin to persecute you once you're married. Because they are, in fact, sons of Satan or a daughter of Satan. And you are a son or daughter of God. It's, it's light and darkness trying to be jammed together. It's very, very difficult. That's the worst case scenario. Best case scenario is just that the other person is just meh about your faith. They don't support you. They don't, they don't agree with you. 
They're not really hostile, but there's no spiritual connection at all, and the Christian spouse feels lonely and isolated. There's a reason, you guys, for this command. This command is important to obey. But the situation that I think Paul is dealing with is is what happens probably more often. And that's when two unbelievers get married together. And then one of them later comes to faith in Jesus. What then? What then? How do you how do you live your life then? Well, depending upon the situation, that can be just as tough as the other situation where a believer marries an unbeliever because now you're following Jesus and maybe you've been married for a long time and your unbelieving spouse has zero interest and they're like, wait a minute, the game changed here. I didn't, I didn't marry you as a Christian and I don't want anything to do. And now there, there's some friction. There's some difficulty in the marriage that's never been there before. You've never had that. And now maybe you're living with your persecutor. And let me say, if you know people like that or that is your reality, I just want to encourage you that in God's mercy, he has placed you or your friend or whoever in the household they have to be a bright and shining light of the gospel of Jesus Christ to the unbelievers in your home. And so shine the light of Jesus in their life. That's what they need. When I became a Christian, I was the only believer in both of my households, either my dad's household or my mom's household. God had saved me to be a light in two households. You can do the same thing. You can encourage your friends to be the same light, to be a gentle and loving light. But here's what seems to be happening in Corinth. It seems people who came to faith in Jesus after they were married were now wondering, well, what do I do with my unbelieving spouse? Do I, do I stay married to this pagan? I mean, he's rejecting Jesus. What, what do I do here? Do I divorce them? And if I don't divorce them, can I have sex with them? Can I have children with them? Is that okay? Because in the old covenant, God expressly forbid to have any sort of sexual union with pagans. And if you had children with a pagan, they were not allowed to enter the tabernacle or the temple for 10 generations. They were unclean. And so what do we do? Well, Paul says, look, if your spouse is willing to live with you, great. Verse 12, to the rest I say, I not the Lord, that if any brother, a Christian, has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. So no Christian should divorce their unbelieving spouse if the spouse consents to live with them. And let me tell you, it's often a hard road to hoe living with an unbelieving spouse. It just is. It's a very difficult calling. Very difficult calling. Paul encourages, though, that those who are married to unbelievers, that they should continue to love their spouse as before, including being intimate with them and having kids. Verse 14. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. And you go, what in the world is he talking about? Again, in the Old Covenant, an Israelite, the people of God, could not be intimate with pagans, but that is now changed in the New Covenant. So there's this holiness issue that he's talking about, and then he enters into this issue of children, having children. And so what he's talking about is being intimate with your unbelieving spouse. He's saying it's okay. It's okay to be intimate with your unbelieving spouse. The unbeliever is made holy. That doesn't mean they become a Christian just because they're spouses. And there's nothing magical going on. 
the idea is that sexual intimacy is still encouraged because the power of the new covenant is that the, the believing spouse is actually a spiritually purifying effect even on their unbelieving spouse. doesn't save them, but it allows them to have intimacy with them. And their children are not pagan children, as it were. If they have children, the children are holy in the sense that they are acceptable to God through faith in Jesus, just like any other children are acceptable to God through faith in Jesus. The children of believers are not automatically saved. They're not holy in that sense. They're just holy in the sense that they are not cast away from God in some, some especially egregious situation. No, they can have access to God through faith in Jesus, just like anybody else can have access to God through faith in Jesus. So although Christians should not marry unbelievers, if they are married to an unbeliever, they are still able to be intimate and have children to the glory of God. Well, what if their spouse divorces them? Maybe their unbelieving spouse doesn't follow the same rules. Maybe the unbelieving spouse can't stand their Christianity any longer. Verse 15. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. So no believer is ever authorized to proactively divorce, not even their unbelieving spouse. So believers are commanded, you don't divorce your believing spouse, you don't divorce your unbelieving spouse, which pretty much leaves nobody. You can't divorce anybody, because they're either in one camp or the other, so there's no divorce. But if the unbeliever wants a divorce, Paul says, so be it. That's not our desire. We don't want that. We want to stay with them. We'd rather there be unity despite the differences, but the believer is not enslaved, meaning they don't have to fight tooth and nail to keep the marriage going. If the unbeliever is going to push it, they're going to push it, and it's just going to happen. There's nothing you can do. And so just to get really practical, in our legal system, that means if a believer is served papers by their unbelieving spouse, it is okay to sign them. You don't have to fight it tooth and nail. Because at the end of the day, they will get what they want anyway. You can't fight it for long. And you're not enslaved. It's also okay to cooperate with mediation and keep the court out of it. If this is what the unbelieving spouse is pushing for. This is often called the abandonment clause. If an unbelieving spouse abandons the believer, files for divorce, you are not enslaved to the marriage. The peaceable option at that point is just to not fight and let them go hoping that there's maybe reconciliation down the road. And I've seen that happen too, where the unbeliever leaves. For whatever reason, they come to faith in Jesus, and they reconcile. Or what's crazy is the unbeliever leaves, gets remarried, then comes to faith in Jesus, and apologizes to his former spouse for the sin he committed against her. We live in a messed up world, you guys. And the grace of Jesus inserts itself into every aspect of our messed up world. Jesus wants reconciliation. Well, but they might never come to faith in Jesus if I don't stay married to them. They won't, they won't have me to be there to be a light and to pray for them. Paul answers that too in verse 16. He says, for how do you know wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know husband, whether you will save your wife? That no one is guaranteed that their faith is going to somehow rub off on their unbelieving spouse. We, we're not given that promise at all. There, there's a sanctifying effect within the marriage covenant to an unbeliever. Yeah, but, it, but it's not a saving effect. Well, then what? 
Can the believer who's been divorced by their unbelieving spouse get remarried? Many people would say, many people would say yes. I would say no. And here's why. Because the believer is still in a covenant commitment to their unbelieving spouse. At that point, I think verse 11 applies the same. But if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. Stay single. Live out your covenant until death do you part. If they die, get remarried. Only in the Lord. Don't send them things in the mail that they would eat and accelerate the death process. This, you guys, is why Jesus said that some people in the kingdom of God have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom. This is radical. It, it's not complicated. It's very simply straight. It's straightforward. It's just right here. This is why Jesus has said, some people have, have just said, you know what? No marriage, because this is too hard. This is, this is, in fact, radical. Can I just tell you something? And this is something I mentioned at the beginning. This is important. The goal of the Christian life is not just to get through life barely married, just kind of barely making it through. I've, I've talked to old codgers, you know, oh yeah, I've been married for 50 years, and then all they do is complain about their wife and nag and, and all sorts of nonsense, and they feel like non-divorce is some merit badge that I should be really impressed by because somehow they, they kind of held themselves together. I mean, it's ugly, but they held themselves together. They, they made it 55 years, so that's something. You guys, the goal of our life is not just to not get divorced. If you are married, the goal of your life is to show the love of Christ to your wife or to show the love of Christ to your husband in a way that reflects the covenant love between Jesus and the church. It is to thrive in your marriage. It is to crucify your sinful flesh every day and dig deep by loving them sacrificially because that's what Jesus did for you. He dug deep. He drank the whole drop of wrath for you. And we are called to drink all of the cup for our spouses. And day by day, year by year, our marriage should more perfectly reflect the love of Jesus in the church. And listen very carefully. Your kids don't need a huge inheritance. Your kids don't need a bunch of money. You don't need to sacrifice your life and your marriage or whatever in the pursuit of money. They don't need a Facebook feed full of cutesy pictures. You know what your kids need and your grandkids need? They need daddy who loves mommy deeply. And they need mommy who loves daddy deeply. Because what they're seeing is a picture of Jesus in their own home. It's the most important thing you can do is to show the love of Christ to your spouse. That's the gospel to your children. That's the gospel to your grandchildren. That's the legacy you want to leave them. That's the inheritance that they need for the glory of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you call us to hard things. These are hard truths, Lord. And so we need your grace. We need your mercy. We need your spirit to live these out. I pray for those who are having a, a rough season in their marriage, Lord. Give them grace. Give them resolve all the more to show the covenant-keeping love that Jesus showed us. And thank you, Lord, for, for your grace in marriages, your grace in purity. Lord, may we show the love of Christ more and more day by day for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.